Help us to never lose the wonder. Help us to never lose the wonder of who you are, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to um, move into a time of, of hearing from God's Word and, uh, and reflecting on, on, on some of those passages. Uh, the worship doesn't stop when the music stops. Uh, we continue to worship as we, as we listen and as we, as we give ourselves to God's Word and hear Him speak to us. And so uh, this next uh, section of the evening, uh, we've asked five different people to, to come and share uh, a passage from the Bible on the Easter story, and then uh, a short reflection from that passage. That could be something that's personal to them, of how that passage has spoken to them, or what it, what it helps them to think about when we look at the Easter story uh, together. There's also going to be a video uh, played halfway through uh, as well. Um, so just encourage you just to, to listen and, uh, and just follow along and, and just engage with it as well uh, as, as these guys come and share. So uh, I'm going to invite Susie uh, to come up uh, and share. Um, the passage is going to appear on the, scri- on the screen or the reference, but Susie's going to read it uh, for us. Uh, and then she's going to hand over to the next person. So Susie. Hello. Um, So it's Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay. Let's rewind. Let's take a look at the journey of Jesus before we delve into this donkey riding. Born of the Virgin Mary, a refugee, a Jew, brought up in the Gentile town of Galilee, beloved son of God. A teacher, a preacher, a healer, the people followed, loved, the religious loathed to hear the revelation of God's gospel. God's truth, God's heart, God's love brought to the ears and the eyes by a lowly carpenter of Nazareth. Who is this man? You see, Jesus rebuked the zealots and the pious, but sanctioned and befriended the harlots and the liars. Who is this man? You see, truly sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O God. 
This was a means to an end, O God. You delight in the truth, O God. A repentant and broken and honest spirit, O God. Until now, there was no razzle-dazzle, naming lights, fanfare, ground glorification of Jesus. A gentleman, humbly, Jesus came, denying himself, giving God the glory and the fame. The almighty, precious name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, your will be done, your kingdom come. But Jesus, in the know, in the Holy Trinity as one, Father, Spirit, Son, Jesus takes the stage, the honor and the praise. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A beast of burden. You see, before Jesus, who by the way is fully God and fully man, completed God's ultimate rescue plan, the Pharisees and the religious peoples had sold a religion of must-dos, weighing down, saturating, oppressing, burdening the Jews with the hot off-the-press news of how to look the part without the broken, repentant heart. However, now... Sin will not have the victory. Death, where is your sting? For Jesus will overcome, defeat, and quash this beast of burden. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole city erupts in jubilation, adoration for the king. Out on the city walls, You hear the praises ring, the children sing, echoing the angels for Zion. Your king has come, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Come to Jesus, all who are weary, and he will give you rest. Jesus, the Son of God, servant king, will restore your soul. Last Supper, Luke 22, verses 14 to 23. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go, as it has been decreed. But woe to the man that betrays him. So the title given to this passage is the Last Supper, and it kind of led me to thinking about what I would want to say 
if I was given a last supper with my girls, if I knew this was the last time I was going to see them, what would I want to say? And I was, I was thinking I'd want to say to them, look after each other, because family's important. I'd want to say to them, remember me. And I'd want to say to them, look after your dad, because he won't be able to find anything. Because um, that's what it's like in our house sometimes. <laughs> so... Um, what Jesus did is kind of similar. He instituted a meal. He instituted something that would help people to remember him. And I think tradition has got a bit of a bad reputation sometimes in the church, but I am learning to love tradition. I'm learning to love liturgy because there's something really special about a routine and something that happens and comes around and helps us to remember um, and Easter is, is one of those. It's part of the liturgy of the church, and we should celebrate that. Um, so I, what I thought about what happens when we follow this tradition that Jesus established, <clears throat> he set up three connections that I can see. The first connection was one with himself. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we come to communion, we get a connection with Jesus. And I want to tell you just something about a bit of a family tradition that I have. Um, every year, I meet up with my sisters around the time where we remember my mum dying and her, the time she passed away. And we get together and we, we laugh and we cry and we remember her and we celebrate together her life. And there's something about having something solid that helps you remember and so as we take bread and wine tonight, there's something there that says I can connect with Jesus. That's our first connection. Our second connection is with each other because we're all part of the same bread. We all drink from the same cup. And this is a biggie for me because I think I have hermit tendencies. I kind of like to be on my own. So when I take communion, it's important for me to know that I'm actually part of something that's a whole thing. It's not just me on my own. So that's our second connection. And the third connection, I just want to make sure I read it properly. The third connection that he instituted was a future hope. He talked about, I'm not going to eat this meal again until I do it with you in glory. And when we take communion, when we have the bread and wine, there is something to be said for saying there's a future hope, there's something coming that's glorious. And when we sit down and eat this meal with Jesus, it's going to be in glory. So just um, tonight when we take communion, there's three connections that he wants with us. And it's firstly with him, secondly with each other, and then with our future hope. Hello. That's intense. <clears throat> Okay, uh, so I'm going to reflect on um, the, the mockery of Jesus, a little bit like that, but actually later on when, when the guards mock Jesus. Um, I think when I came to this passage, um, it just looks, and the whole thing looks like this, but that particular passage on the mockery of Jesus just looks so much like he's a victim. It just has that. If you, if you looked at it with no other context and you didn't know what was going on and you just saw the way they treated him, you'd think, this guy is just a He's suffering. And he can't defend himself, and it's just very sad. 
the more I reflected on that, you could kind of obviously know in the story as well. You think, actually, who's in control in this situation? Um, there's a paradox in here. I'll read the passage, and then um, I'll share some reflections. Not all of them. You could talk about this or not. I'll just raise some questions. Um, but uh, it says... Yeah, I got the right one. It says, The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And uh, I think for me, the thing that is striking about that is that at any stage in that, Jesus could have stopped what was going on, um, which is extraordinary. And um, it's not that he was unable. Um, and you can see that in the garden as well. It's a different scene, but you can see when, I wasn't actually expecting this, but it's so striking. And when Jesus healed the servant's ear, you think, oh, well, this guy's got power. And yet he didn't use that power to defend himself, but he could have done. It wasn't that he was unable. I'd even say it wasn't that he was unjustified, because when they worshipped him as a king, he was a king. He could have shut them down and said, actually, how dare you? You have no idea I am the king. And it wasn't even that he was unwilling. For the scripture says he was tempted in every way. And if you've been punched in the face, don't tell me he's not tempted to knock him back. But he chose not to. In fact, he chose not even to say anything, to take that mockery. Um, and for me, I think, what is Jesus doing here? I could just, I mean, we, we understand the story, but to look, you know, just to step back and think for a second, what is he doing? And there's, for me, I'll share a few reflections. Like I say, I'm sure there's many more. Um, I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, but one thing for me is that he was, he was making it possible for us, to, for us to identify, or him to identify with us, if anyone suffers the same sort of thing ourselves. So I was a teacher for many years, and when you see bullying uh, in school, it's a horrible thing, and there's teachers there to step in, and you know, there's, a, there's a system that deals with that. But actually, as adults, people experience the same, and it's harder to deal with sometimes. And people experience mockery. Um, even here, people have maybe experienced that work or at home or neighbors or whatever to experience that mockery. And when you cry out to God and say, look, I'm struggling here, he can actually say, you know what? I know how you feel. That the creator of the universe, the almighty God, actually knows what it's like to be mocked unfairly. And for me, when I, you know, when I come before God, to know that he feels that is massive. Um, but it's more, because actually, even though they mock Jesus, I thought, well, actually, he'll have the last laugh one day. So those soldiers who were punching him, and actually another um, gospel says they were saying, prophesy, who hit you? And he knows it. They'll stand before him in glory one day and think, oh, wow. The guy that we pretended was a king and worshipped him. Oh, oh he, oh, man, that's going to be an intense moment. But the thing was that I thought, like, you know, in a very human sense, if this was a Hollywood film, um, you'd think, and then Jesus would say, I told you so. <laughs> There'd be like a revenge moment. But actually, Jesus wasn't after revenge. When people, when those soldiers stand in glory and see him, he won't say, I told you so, and rub it in their face and knock him out. Like, revenge isn't, that's not, not what he was doing. He was doing something deeper. And um, <clears throat> I think, uh, for me, that it didn't even, it won't even happen in glory. The thing that is so powerful about someone who, um, who could react but chooses not to is it shows a greater strength. 
So actually that servant in the garden, Malchus, when he, saw, when he saw that Jesus had the power to heal him but didn't, there's that scene, it's actually quite well shot, where he's just like, now what do I think? Like, I've been sent to arrest this guy, and he healed me, and now we're, what? Like, how do you get your head around that? And actually the same soldiers, it actually said in Matthew 27, the translation, um, the whole company of soldiers gathered around him. So there would have been soldiers there who were there at the cross, and they'd seen the earthquake and the temple curtain torn and top to bottom and the darkness, and there was actually a centurion who said, surely this was the son of God. And Ned would have fought back to be like, oh, this was the guy that we were mocking. And so there's that kind of intense moment. But actually, again, Jesus wouldn't have looked down and gone, told you so. Actually, what he was doing is he was forgiving them, even for that mockery. That's crazy, isn't it? And I just think, what composure. I would not have a strength to do that. I'd have, like, you know, you could pitch like a Jason Bourne film and just knocked him out. But he could, I mean, he could have done that, but he just didn't. And they would have realized that, looking at him on the cross, thinking he could have ended this, but he chose not to. What strength. And so, um, yeah, I could worship a God like that. Can you hear me? Is that right? Oh, cheers. Um, so I've got John chapter 19, verses 16 to 19. And it says, so he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, <coughs> Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Um, so when I'm thinking about the events of Passion Week, I tend to ask myself the question, who is the victim of this crime? And as Dan just helpfully said, Jesus is definitely a victim. But there's a real sense in which almost the greater victim is God, our Father. And if you see the story of Passion Week through the lens of the Father, you get to understand something of his heart for how much he loves you and I, that he would send his son to be physically tortured, socially humiliated, in order to reconcile yourselves and myself to him. Earlier in Passion Week, Mark, in his gospel, shares a parable that Jesus told. It's a parable of a father who creates a vineyard, and he leases it to stewards. And when the time is right, he asks, and he sends some servants to the vineyard and says, well, they will give me my produce that I am due. And the people, they abuse some of the servants, they murder others, and at last... The father says to himself, well, I've got one son. Maybe they will listen surely to him. And Jesus told this parable as against the Jews and the religious leaders. That's what they'd done throughout the Old Testament. They'd killed a number of the prophets that had been sent to the Jews, and they would do so with the son. And this Passion Week story is kind of like that in a scale with Jesus. God the Father sends Jesus to the world, and we say, well, what do we say? He's delivered, he delivered him to them. That's Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Now, typically speaking, throughout human history, there have been people with power and people without power. And those who have power tend to use the physical threat of force or the demonstration of force to control the behavior of those who are weaker. And Rome was no different. 
particularly in the provinces, like in Judea, where there had been a number of insurrections before Jesus was born and even during his lifetime, there had to be a show of force by Rome in order to control the behavior of the people. And so what the Romans used to do with crucifixion was make it as public as possible. So there would be a centurion instructed to command 50 to 100 soldiers, and he would be given a white board of hyssop. And on that whiteboard, there would be written, these are the crimes committed by the people who are about to be condemned and executed. The centurion, in turn, would give four soldiers the command of each person who was going to be condemned. So they'd walk in front, behind, and to the sides. So when we've got Jesus and the two robbers being crucified, there would have been 12 soldiers around about those three persons. There would then have been the rest of the garrison protecting them. And because of Jewish Old Testament law, you couldn't have a crucifixion or an execution inside the camp, which became the city walls in Jesus' day. So they had to walk from inside to outside of the city. So there would have been this death parade walking through all of the busy streets and market towns during the Passover festival, where multitudes of people, and St. Luke tells us this in his gospel, multitudes of people saw Jesus and saw this sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we're told also in Luke's Gospel that many of the women mourned and lamented. They cried tears because they knew the end that Jesus was about to wrongly come to. And then we get to the crucifixion. And one of the interesting things that's recorded in John's Gospel is just the formation. I think it's common to many human cultures that the thing we find most important, we stick it, we say front and center. If you're an athlete and you find yourself standing in the middle it tends to depict that you have run the fastest or jumped the highest or swum the furthest or whatever it might be. You're going to have a gold medal because you were the best at that thing. And the formation of the cross is mankind's answer to God the Father. We say, a murderer? Well, we do care a bit about that, but Barabbas, we'll release him. We'll let him go. Robbers? Well, yes, they offend us. They've wounded some people to try and take their goods, but we'll put those to the sides. But this Jesus, this Jesus who the Gentiles under Pilate three times declaring him not guilty, and who the Jews wrongly finding him guilty of blasphemy because he dared to say who he was, I am the son of the blessed, the son of God. And so they wrongly find him guilty. Although this innocent man is innocent, they crucify him in the middle as though he is the worst of offenders, under the heavens to God the Father. So when God the Father asks, surely if I send my son, they will listen to him. We say, here he is, we reject him. He is the worst of all sinners, the most offensive to us. And it's that that I think I'd love to just reflect upon, that when you're thinking about Passion Week, God the Father suffered that, the gravest of sins you can imagine, and used it as a means to reconcile you and I, um, to him. Matthew, <coughs> sorry, Matthew 27, starting at verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the climax of the eternal plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit for the salvation of the world. It is begun. The earth trembles at the reality of this. God dies. On a cross, outside a town, surrounded by witnesses, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and gives up his spirit. You see, when, when other gods demand a sacrifice, they wait. They wait and see what's going to come. They wait and see whether it'll be worthy of acceptance. But when this God demands a sacrifice, he provides it as a penitent. He offers it as a priest. He is killed as an offering and he accepts it as the righteous judge if you've read the bible you've seen shadows of it before in genesis god provided the sacrifice that he asked of abram in leviticus god provides the means for his people to be forgiven and in samuel God accepts Hannah's gift of her son, who God had provided for her. But here God purchases the church with his own blood. As Paul says in Acts, God the Son experiences human death in all its agony and its shame and its indignity that we would live. Jesus Christ cries out in dereliction, why have you forsaken me? At the same time, God calls out to you, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. The man Jesus Christ is exiled in death that we would have our home in God. Jesus Christ descends to the dead so that the dead can be raised to life. And we are assured that God understands our pain and our agony and our frailty from the inside because he's experienced it. We're assured our sins are forgiven 
because Christ paid for them. We're assured of our status as children of God, our place in God's family. And we're assured that the barriers that barred us from God's presence, his blessings and his love, have been forever torn into. How do we participate in this? <clears throat> How do we come to the place where we're one of those who can say this is true of them? How do we proclaim this? How do we shout it from the rooftops? How do we remember what happened on this day? Well, Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood that was shed for your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat>